When it comes to how we think of personal responsibility, it's amazing how many people will say, hey, that person should have known. That person should have done something. I'll give you an example. If you were to have a house next to a lake or the beach or an ocean and your kid were to drown, get stuck in the water, everyone around you would say you should have taught them how to swim. If you have that same house and you don't put it on stilts and water comes and overtakes your house and you have to replace your home, everyone's going to say you should have known that's true. Today's mission day is a little bit different. Stephanie Postles, she's not here today. She's she's here, but she's not going to talk because she's actually lost her voice. And I'm about to go to Costa Rica and not record. So this is the first time you've heard from me because I was in Nicaragua. Now I'm going to go to Costa Rica. And uh, it's because I like to go surfing. But it's okay because I'm doing this for free. So it's fine. But what I want to talk about today is this idea of personal responsibility. Because When we look at somebody else, we expect them to have substantial personal responsibility. But when we look at ourselves, we kind of don't think the same. And why I'm talking about this today is actually an observation I've made with the open to work hashtag. So if you go on LinkedIn right now and go hashtag open to work, it's not cool. I mean, there's a lot of people that are struggling and it sucks. And I'm not, I don't think that these are bad people. I think probably most people were trying to do a good job. I mean, we ourselves had to lay people off at Mission uh, due to tech rollbacks. So a lot of our customers had to roll back their spending. They had to lower their investment in marketing, lower their investment in podcast creation, which affected our business. And it got to the point where we were carrying less revenue. We were carrying more payroll than revenue. So, I mean, the math doesn't work. And yet cuts have to be made. And it sucked. And that has proliferated around to many other businesses. And so there are a lot of people that have been displaced uh, work-wise, for sure. There's a lot of people that have been displaced work-wise. Income-wise, there's a lot of people that have been displaced. Of course, some of our team members have also been displaced, uh, taking pay cuts, even though they're still working. But you know, no one cares because there is some level of work. But here's where I think people should be more proactive. I was checking out the hashtag open to work and taking a look and reading some of the stories. And some of the more sad stories, and I say sad, is the ones where it sounds like they're begging. It sounds like some people have been out of work for, let's say, almost a year. Almost a year. They're talking about thousands of resumes. I think they're trying to say, hey, I've done everything I can to get a, to get a job, but I don't have one yet. And they're looking for help. And I'm not trying to put down anyone that's doing that. But what I see as an opportunity for those of you who have income, for those of you that currently maybe have savings, is an opportunity to exert a little bit of personal responsibility to make yourself a little bit more recession-proof in the future. So why did I use the example from the very beginning about water and being living next to the ocean, living next to rivers? Water rises. We know that. Natural events cause causes the water to rise. And it's your duty and responsibility as a homeowner to protect against that. Likewise, if you have a pool or you have a big body of water, you have a personal duty and responsibility to teach your kid how to swim. It's just a fact. Most people don't feel bad. They just don't. They don't feel that bad um, for others when they're when they view that their personal responsibility, they didn't exercise a lot of personal responsibility. 
And the reason why I'm talking about open work is because there's enough history. It is proven time and time and time again that there is no such thing as economic stability. It doesn't exist. There is no business. There, there's no business that's never fallen. There is no nation that's never had hard times. So hard times are inevitable. There's no evidence that there's any indication in any manner, anywhere, that you're always going to be on the up and up. In fact, given in my age, I'm 43, I actually suspect that there won't be long before no one will ever hire me again. And I think that's, you know, am I a cynic? Am I a pessimist? I don't know. I'm kind of a realist. I mean, I see some of these LinkedIn open to work hashtags and people talking about how hard it is to be older. And then people are writing articles about how, you know, you should still invest in the boomer generation. And I'm thinking to myself, man, whether that's true or not, whether people should or should not do that, will I be, which side of that fence will I fall on? Not what will I do? What will I fall on? Will I be fall victim to people who do have age discrimination? Or am I going to do something about it? And that's the biggest thing I think that I would love or implore others who are listening to the show to think about is like, what is your personal responsibility to yourself? What will you do the next time that we're in a recession right now? I think we're in one. What will you do about it? What will you do for the next one? There's going to be another one. The other thing to think about is, is there even going to be an economic boom time? Some people are just like, I'm going to wait it out. Wait, wait it out. What if it doesn't, what if it doesn't recover? What if it's slow? Okay. There's a lot of people right now who I believe have been displaced in jobs that might not come back. Some of the entry-level researchers and copywriters, I saw some articles about people saying, hey, I got replaced by ChatGPT. That sucks. Is that happening in droves right now? It kind of is, I'm, I'm assuming. I saw the CEO of IBM came out and recently said, hey, some of these entry-level analyst jobs, we're just not going to replace. Automation and AI has already figured it out. So what are you going to do about that? And you're sitting there right now and thinking to yourself, what are you going to do about that? So here's what I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about, one, what is in tremendous demand? Are there jobs with tremendous demand that I could do? I'm not saying willing. This, this idea of will, we'll talk about that next, that I could do. And the answer is yes. There are tons of jobs right now that I could do. So if Mission were to fold and some of my other businesses were to fold and they were like, hey, you're done. I don't have any work. Could I very, very quickly get work again? I believe the answer is yes. There is no way I'd be out of work for over a year. It's insane. I'm not waiting. I'm not waiting that long. I just not. Mainly also, some people say it's like, oh, your opportunity cost is too high. Like if you take a lower paying job, like you won't get a high. Dude, you're on the assumption that you're going to get a high paying job. Like if you didn't get one in five months, well, I don't know what month seven is going to bring around. It's going to bring something around. I don't know. Why can't you look for that high paying job while doing a lower paying job? I don't understand why people don't ever think that way. For me, when I think about where I first started as a teacher, I would go back. I would go back to teaching school. There's an abundant demand. Would I be the best teacher? I don't know. Probably not. But I bet you I'm better than some of the teachers currently working right now. I know that. Could I get a job? I think I could. I think I could get work. I might have to quiet up my social media profile. But then again, there are not enough good, smart teachers that are out there anyway. So I came from a place that I come from an occupation that is in tons of demand, not enough supply. I would do that job. 
The other thing I saw on CNBC recently is over there's more construction openings than ever before. Over 650,000 jobs in construction alone. More and more people signing up for that. That makes no sense to me. Because we've gotten to a place where not only do we think things are unfair, I think a lot of people think much more highly of their skill set and the way they should live than reality is setting in. And I think reality right now is kind of slapping some people around quite hard. They're finding out really quickly that they used to live a certain way and earn a certain income. And for whatever reason, they think that should exist forever. But it's not going to. It's just not. So what to do? I'm talking, I'm not going to complain. I'm not going to harp, but I'm thinking about what could I do? The first thing I always think about is I want to know exact income plus. So I know what I can earn in exact income in one of those high occupation fields. I'm going to call that teaching because that's the one I know I feel like I could go to pretty quickly. I could probably find others too, but let's just go with teaching. Let's say L private industry sucks. They're not going to hire anything. Uh, it gets rolled up. There's always going to be school. If there's no school, that'll be a different problem. I, I'll figure something else out. But let's just assume there's going to be some semblance of economy that no matter what the rollback is, we're not going to zero, right? We're not rolling back to zero. Unemployment is low right now. Jobs might not be growing as fast, but there's still plenty of open jobs. I checked it out. There's tons of open jobs. I might not qualify for a lot of them, but that doesn't matter. I can qualify for something. So I'm going to look at that. The next thing I'm going to look at is what do I need is the difference to have what I think is a comfortable income. So I'll use, um, I'll use six figures as the number, $100,000 a year. For some of you who live in Silicon Valley or New York, that might sound like trash. But for most people, the average income is well under 100000 for a household. Uh, like the top, the median where I live in Raleigh is like 70000 That's for the household. So two income earners, seventy grand. So making hundred, you'd be much, much better off than most households. So the first thing I think to myself is, well, I want to live like a pauper. So all my hard expenses, I try to keep super low. That's just the way I am. I always keep my hard expenses low. Hard expenses I account for a mortgage and typically car. And then the next thing that's expensive is how much you spend each month on food, how much you spend each month on the critical things that you need. Shelter and food, utilities, that's usually it. So if you have a smaller house, you have smaller utility bills. Now people are like, oh, you got to live in abundant lifestyles. Like, man, I, I hear that vibe all the time. And I'm like, but I don't feel like I'm in scarcity mode. You see what I'm saying? I got the smallest house on the block. Do I feel like I'm not living well? Not really. But when I hear my neighbors complain about work and stuff, I'm just like, I don't have that problem either. So the first thing I think about is I want to live as low as possible. So the next thing is that generation of income. Personally, for me, I've learned and discovered real estate recently. Like that's where I'm putting my money. And I have put bids and offers in on many, many homes. Some I don't win. And I think it's easier when it's not your actual home because it's got to follow the numbers. It's easier and less emotional when I'm trying to purchase properties that meet a number. And it's easy for me to just say like, okay, this one fits, this one doesn't. I've acquired properties and I've got tenants in all of them. Because I acquired properties in the right price range where there's an abundant of renters, it's easier for me to get people. I can get people that are earning less income and I can get people that are earning more if I wanted to. It's not a problem, right? Now, you might have heard in some of the Mission Daily episodes that I rent Section 8. People are like, ah, oh, that's, you're taking advantage of the government. Not really. It's a government program available to everybody. So if you wanted to buy a property and rent it to a Section 8 voucher holder, you're welcome to do that. I'm not charging my tenant rent. I am accepting the allotment that the federal Department of Housing and Urban Development They've set the rate. 
They said, landlords, you can have this much in the zip code if you house a voucher holder. And I just say, yes, this is not hard. People are like, oh, well, how do you market? Market, bro. As soon as you post an opening, you get 100 applicants. It ain't hard. All right. When this program goes away, what will I do next? I'll do something else. I can still, I still own the house. I don't buy dilapidated houses. It's still available in private markets. Some of my units have been picked up by private market. So how did I get to that place? I had a chunk of cash. And people think, oh, do you had a, you had a lot of money? That's not, not true at all. I've purchased in properties that are under two hundred thousand dollars. I just not. I just don't live near them. I'm, there are none in Raleigh. People are like, oh, where'd you find that in Raleigh? I didn't. I went further away. So, if you have any type of money for yourself, the one thing I think about is how do I generate an income with that money? Properties is one. Buying and acquiring small businesses is another. Follow Cody Sanchez. Take a listen to our advice. Some of our team members of Mission have already looked into acquiring small businesses. They don't have to be huge operations. This is a big misconception people have. It's like, oh, they want to get, oh, I got to send to a billion dollars. Like, bro, maybe you just want a job that has a lot of income coming in. I don't know. Makes life easier. So that's what I would do. I, if I, whatever I have for savings, I'm looking right now to buy a cash flowing asset. So a cash flowing asset is going to be real estate and it's going to be possibly a small business. The reason why it's not stocks and equities, which I also own, is because those don't pay you on a consistent basis. Those only pay, of course, they grow in value. But if you sell them, of course, you'll have the tax event there. And then, of course, you can't earn as much the next year. So my stocks and equities, I keep in savings. 401k, sure, contribute to that. But if you have any type of cash left over, start thinking very much so about acquiring cash flow. That's the term. You want to acquire cash flow. Something that's going to generate cash for you on a monthly basis. If you can get your cash flow to, let's say you're a knowledge worker and you think you're the shit and you make $100,000, fine. If you have $30,000 of cash flow, that creates a huge range of jobs that you can now say yes to that will keep your standard of living. If you have a high-end job, a better job, you're just going to have even more cash flow. The difference between acquiring a cash-flowing asset and not being able to acquire a cash flowing asset is oftentimes a little bit of discipline and a little bit of desire. All right. I drive an old car, not a new car. You'll hear Graham Stephan talk about that all the time. Dave Ramsey, people are like, oh man, you got to go get a Bugatti like Andrew Tate. Bro, I will never buy a high end car. When I look at a car right now, I, I'm, I'm, I'm actually concerned right now that the price of cars are so high. Like you never see cars under 20 grand anymore. They used to have the Corolla used to be under 20 grand, the Honda Civic used to be under 20 grand. Now every car is like 30 grand, 40 grand. But dude, it's too expensive. Like I've never bought a car that expensive. It drives me insane. I think I'm only going to buy used cars from now on. But that's literally the difference. If I were to say someone like my neighbor, he's I'll look out the window right now. He's got an Infinity QX, whatever that is. It's 50 grand. I know that easily. So his car is more than double mine. I also know how often he turns his vehicles. Since I've been here, I've purchased one car. Only because a drunk driver hit me and totaled it. So I was given insurance money. I had to get a new car. So literally never bought a new car due to desire. I've only bought a new car out of necessity, which sucked. I still hate it. And that was five and a half years ago. This guy's turned over three cars. So when he asks me, how am I able to go on vacation all the time? It's like, well, in that same time frame, I bought three houses that I rent. You buying cars. I'm buying houses that pay me cash flow. You're buying depreciating assets. I buy assets that grow in value. This is the only difference there is. 
He lost his job. He's pissed. He's stressing right now. And he's looking for more work. And he asked me for work. I don't have any. So if you are a person of means and you can afford to, and you have any type of cash right now, you might think to yourself, well, I want to save it in case there's a rainy day. I'm telling you right now that rainy day is coming. It's coming. And if it hasn't come for you specifically, it's probably, it might come later. Okay. And if it never comes, good. Good for you. That's awesome. But if you're sitting out there and you're worried about what's going to happen in the next six months, which I think most people are, but you have some money, figure out a way to generate some cash flow. It's probably going to be via buying a small business that's in existence, not a new one, in existence. I'm not against building, buying new businesses, but it's, I think they're harder. I just, I just think they are, right? It's easier to buy a business that's existing, that is cash flowing, that you can evaluate, that you can walk in day one, turn on the lights, and customers will walk in through the door. That's what I believe. I would strongly lean towards that direction because if you're sitting there waiting for bad news, I got bad news. Bad news is going to come. And then what? When it happens and you start asking for help, the reality is everyone else is worried about their own jam. They're going to wish you it. They're going to think more like the people when we talked about from the start, like, well, where's your personal responsibility in this endeavor? Why can't you take a lower paying job? Like when I see some of these people, these people, I'll say people I'm closer to complain about not being able to find work. I just think to myself, you're not willing to do less, lesser work for lesser pay. I can't help you. I don't think like you. If you're interested in learning or want us to talk more about cash flowing businesses, let's talk about it. We've been talking about it for a lot of the, the weeks during here on Mission Daily. I feel pumped because I think we've motivated a couple of people with some people have written to us already at info at mission.org and have told us like, hey, listen, I got I heard your story. I bought an Airbnb turnout place. Hey, I bought, heard your story. I bought a custodial business. Hey, I heard your story. I started rent. I bought some properties to rent. I think this is the way. I think the future is going to be not built by. That's super aspirational, but it's going to be better specifically for people who are investing in downfalls. You will have less in the next few years. Maybe you won't, but I think you will. So the only way to offset that is to acquire more. That's the, that's the, that's the, that's the, the devil of like the abundance or scarcity mindset. The problem is no matter where, which side you're on, scarcity will never inevitably find you. So you have to think abundantly. That is true. You have to think, and, and there's two different ways to say it. It's like, hey, I don't worry about scarcity. I'm just going to do my thing. Or you think to yourself, hey, scarcity is probably coming, so I'm going to figure out a way to create more abundance so scarcity won't affect me. And that's the way I think. I think scarcity is always coming. There's, therefore, I think to myself, how do I prevent that? This is just my opinion. I'm just one guy. But it is, I think it's tough. When you look at the open to work hashtag, look at how many people are struggling. It's pretty bad. Tell me what you think. Do you think there's a lot of personal responsibility in the current open to work trend? Do you think a lot of these people are just not willing to take other jobs, lesser pay, whatever the case may be? Do you think they need to trade industries? Do you think that every person who had a job for the last 10 years should have access to the exact same role at the exact same rate for the next 10 years? Leave your comments. Tell me what you think. Or do you think like me, that you should figure out a way to offset your income? And if you can offset it, you can do anything. Talk to me. See you next time. This is Albert, Mission Daily.
Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.